Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing today? I'm going to fill in for Pastor Rich as best I can here today. He's, uh, he's doing a little guest speaking of his own in uh, Calvary of the Berkshires. So uh, he's, he's got to teach twice today. So I, you know, keep him in your prayers. Um, it's always a good day when I get to come up here and share something with you. One reason it's good is that if I actually am standing here, that means I'm done making this lesson, because otherwise I'd be hiding in some corner of the church. I would have told Chris to do an extra long worship session, and I'd be trying to to finish it. But it is done, so I'm ready to share it with you. Um, Before I tell you where to turn in your Bibles, I have a question for you. How many of you have ever had an if I won the lottery conversation? It's okay to show your hands. I'm not asking if you play the lottery. what you would buy, yes. What would you do? What would you buy if you won the lottery? You know, this isn't a, this isn't a message about gambling, by the way. <laughs> it's, uh, it's something else. So I've heard, I hear a lot of these at work, you know, especially because there's a whole group of people who sit near me who have a lottery pool. So as they're all giving their dollars in, they all start fantasizing about what they're going to do if they win the lottery. And they fall into a few different camps, you know, as I observe them. We've got the... I'm going to quit my job and go travel the world, people. Then we've got the, I'm going to pay off my house and live off the interest, people, the the smart, budget-conscious people. We've got the, I'm going to buy the coolest car I can find, people. We've got the, even the, I'm going to donate half of it to charity, people. And, you know, the last time I engaged in one of these conversations, I fell under the, I'm going to buy a house on the beach, people. I do love the beach, but I haven't engaged in one of these conversations in a while. I quit. I quit these conversations. And the reason that I quit these conversations is that I found that they weren't doing me a lot of good spiritually. And I'm not, if you, if you talked about this on your way over here, that's okay. <laughs> you know, like, like, we've all had these conversations, I think. But I didn't feel like they were doing me a lot of good. How many of you, after having one of these conversations, ever goes back to your regular life, whatever you were doing before, and says, man, I am just so content to be be sitting here at my desk and doing my job and not winning the lottery? (laughs) You know? I can hear audibly the sighs of the people as they go back to their job. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to go back to work now. They, they're, they're still thinking about how they want to quit this place and become a hot air balloonist or something, you know? But they got to go back to work now. I never felt content after these conversations. And, you know, really, it's just an exercise in discontent. I would like this instead of this. I would like to have all these things instead of what I have. I would like to do this instead of what I'm doing. Some people have uh, the lottery conversation. Some people have the if I could do any job in the world and I didn't have to worry about money conversation, you know, I'd be a zookeeper. I'd be a, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever your thing is, if I didn't have to worry about money. Um, there's the if I could live anywhere in the world conversation. They're all similar conversations. They're all about wanting something that you don't have. So if you haven't guessed yet, what I'm speaking about today is contentment. 
We're going to look in Philippians 4, 10 to 13. And my question is, contentment, can we learn Paul's secret? Because he actually calls it a secret. It's not always an easy thing to attain, contentment. I struggle at times with discontent about all sorts of things. Not my life in general so much as like, I didn't get enough done today. I'm not content with how this day turned out. It rained and I didn't get to go on the bike ride I wanted to go on. I, something, something gets thrown, a monkey wrench gets thrown in the works of whatever I planned on doing and then I'm very discontent as if, you know, the weather of the world should revolve around me and what I had planned. Um, that's one thing. There are other things that I have an easy time with. I've been at the same job doing the same thing for 15 years and uh, that's Part of why I want to talk about this is because I find that that is such a blessing to be content doing what you're, what you're doing. You know, what, if you find contentment in what you're doing and, and what, where God has you, it's such a blessing. And, and I, I see the effects of people who are content and people who aren't content on a daily basis. And, and it just makes such a world of difference in their lives. So it's not easy, right? Let's open to Philippians chapter 4. And... Uh, When I was thinking about doing this lesson, my first thought was, didn't Pastor Rich just teach about Philippians like just, just a little while ago? But I looked. I looked in the sermon archives on the Calvary website, and he taught about this in 2012. So time flies, first of all, because I thought that was really recently. And second of all, that's past the statute of limitations, I think. <laughs> so the next thing I did was I just like, I listened to the audio message with a pen in my hand, and I just wrote down everything he had to say. And then I typed it out, and I put it on this piece of paper here. And no. Tempting, very tempting. So we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 10. As Paul thanks the church in Philippi for a financial gift that they had sent to support him. So let's read. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He's learned the secret. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together and study your word today. I pray that you would speak through me by your Holy Spirit and that you would open all of our hearts to learn the lesson you want us to learn today from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little background information about this letter to the Philippians. It is a letter characterized by great joy in, on Paul's part. It's a very encouraging letter. And yet he wrote it while he was in chains in Rome. A joyful letter from prison? So it would certainly seem that Paul had indeed learned how to be content just about anywhere in any situation. If we take it that he wrote this joyful letter from prison. Now, Pastor John Corson said about this letter that an overarching theme of it is that the key to living, to having joy in your heart, is to have the right thoughts in your mind. That is repeated through the letter to the Philippians. And I think this certainly applies to this idea of finding contentment. Notice two things in the verses we just read. Paul said, I have learned to be content. And then he said, I have learned the secret of being content. He learned it. This suggests to me 
that it's not something that comes naturally to us, is it? We're very discontent, naturally speaking. But we can learn. We can learn from what God has to say here in His Word how to be content. Paul learned. He wasn't always content. In our flesh, we're prone to discontent. So we need to learn to be content like Paul. We need to learn the secret. And that's what I want to find out today. Can we learn the secret too? The short answer is yes. Yes, we can. Let's look a little more at our natural state first, though, our discontented state. Is it fair to say that the people around us in the world very often live in a constant state of discontent in one way or another? The whole advertisement industry drives us or tries to drive us to feel discontent without their products that they're advertising, right? Your car isn't cool enough. You need a new one. Your eyes aren't pretty enough. You need some more makeup. Your phone doesn't have enough apps. You need a new one. Now, if you bought any of those things recently, again, I'm not here to judge you for that, and that's fine. Sometimes we need to buy things. Sometimes our phone falls in a puddle, and then we need a new phone. You know, but sometimes our car breaks down, and we need a new car. But I'm just saying that this, this world we live in pushes us to feel discontent with advertising, with media, messages, the people around us having these lottery conversations and everything. It drives us to try, try and make us feel discontent with what we have. For example, here's a story for you. A few years ago, when I was getting ready to propose to Megan, we went to look at rings. It wasn't a big surprise that I was going to propose to her. I kind of made sure she was going to say yes first before I asked. <laughs> but I wanted to make sure I got the right ring. I wanted to make sure I got one that she would love wearing forever. And without getting into the actual price, she, she picked a ring that she really liked a lot. And it was within my means to buy it. But the lady at the counter, who clearly worked on commission, so how can I blame her? She had to try on several, several times that over, tried to say, well, no, how about this one over here? This one that cost twice as much. This one that honestly looked way too big on her small hands. <laughs> That's a little a bit of an exaggeration, but it was still pretty big. <laughs> and it was still more than I could afford. <laughs> she said to Megan, who liked the smaller one better, I know that one looks big now, but in a few months, you're going to be like, eh. And then you're going to want an upgrade. <laughs> I wanted to say, lady, you are killing me right now. <laughs> you know, like. Megan, to her credit, stuck with the one she picked first, the one she liked the best. And I came back and I bought that one later. She loved it. She still loves it. She still wears it. She hasn't asked me for an upgrade yet. That's good. I don't have any more ring money. <laughs> I hope that lady found someone that that ring was just right for. <laughs> Looks better on him, I think. The point of this story was to say that the world around us depends on discontent to sell bigger, better, more expensive things to us. Even a lifestyle, a better, fancier lifestyle. You know, you, I like to watch HGTV sometimes, but sometimes I just get overwhelmed. Like, like wow, this, these houses are nuts. Of course, we need to buy things. We live in a world. We, we, have, we have to buy food. We have to have a house over our heads, and we need a car, most of us. And, you know, we have to buy things, but 
we don't need to give in to the pressure of being discontent with the things we have. Why don't we turn to Numbers chapter 11 to get a good look at what God sees discontent, sees discontent as. Numbers chapter 11. Let's start in verse 4 of Numbers chapter 11. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. This was not long after the Israelites left Egypt. And God was providing for them. God was leading them. They could see his pillar of fire every night. They could see his pillar of cloud every day. And yet, they grumbled against Moses rather than have the audacity to grumble directly against God about how they were sick of this manna. We never see anything but this manna. That's them gathering their manna. In the next few verses, you can read it later, there's, there's a description of manna, and it sounds like it tastes pretty good, actually. There's nothing there that says that it's bad. They're just bored with it. How quickly they forgot what it was like to be a slave in Egypt. They started grumbling, and they started wishing they could go back to slavery so they could have some cucumbers. <laughs> Interesting. They forgot that the Egyptians were working them to death. They forgot that Pharaoh oppressed them and beat them down. They forgot that they were ordered to kill their male babies there because they were tired of the food they were eating. Oh, the good old days in Egypt. <laughs> Slavery seemed better than being bored with what's for dinner. Now, I like a variety of dinners myself, but I would like to think that I wouldn't take my whining that far about it if I had the same thing every day. What follows in verses 10 through 17 is actually a conversation between Moses and God. After they grumble to Moses, Moses goes and talks to God, and Moses has just about had it. He says to God, If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now, if I have found favor in your eyes. That's how sick of these people he was. That he actually kind of got a little out of hand with God about them. You know, that God had put him in charge of these people, and that it was a burden to him to be leading them when all they're going to do is grumble. Now, that is next-level discontent from what the Israelites had just shown to him. He, he takes it a step further, and he's like, just kill me. I'm so discontent with my life right now that I want you to kill me. But God does not grow angry with Moses. He shows grace to him, I think because God knows what Moses is dealing with with these 600,000 grumbling people. And uh, instead of punishing him for his speaking out of turn, God gives Moses a plan. And he says, I'm going to appoint 70 elders. Pick 70 elders and they're going to help you lead these people so that you won't have to have the burden by yourself. But meanwhile, the people, the people that had grumbled against Moses, God has something to say to them or something to say about them. In verse 18, if you jump down, Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. Wait, that's what they asked for. Is he, is he really punishing them? 
The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? That's what God's going to send them. Quail. Wait a minute. God said that they rejected him? But they were, they were just grumbling about Moses, right? No, they were grumbling about what Moses was doing following God's directions. Moses was doing what God told him to, to lead them out to go to the promised land. So when they grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against him. And Moses isn't the one who made manna fall from heaven for those people to eat. God was. So God saw that they had rejected him when they grumbled against Moses. Manna was God's plan to provide for them on their journey to the promised land. They weren't going to eat manna forever. They were going to eat manna on the way. And then they were going to a land full of milk and honey and I'm sure all kinds of other good things to eat. Maybe even some of those cucumbers that they wanted so bad back in Egypt. Not only did they reject God's food, but they rejected God's plan to take care of them and bring them somewhere so much better. It was a problem over and over and over again for the Israelites. When we're discontent with what we have, we're rejecting both what God has given to us and what he has planned for us. It's as if we're saying, I know better than you, God, what would be best for me. Instead of just saying, thy will be done, not mine. How about another example? If complaining against the Lord was bad, wait until we see what discontent leads to with an already wicked woman and man. 1 Kings chapter 21. Let's turn there. This is during the reign in the northern kingdom of Israel or Samaria, the same thing, same thing if you hear them both mentioned, of King Ahab, who was a wicked king as all the kings of the northern kingdom were. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 21. Sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite, Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. Here he is asking Naboth about the vineyard. Here he is sulking. Isn't that a picture? The king, the king of Samaria throwing a tantrum because he can't put his vegetable garden where he wants it. What is it with vegetables? Was he going to grow cucumbers too? I, I didn't plan it that way because of the vegetable references. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Keep in mind, he is the king and he lives in a palace with land all around it. I'm sure there are other places they could have grown his food. He wasn't content with those places though. He wanted Naboth's place for a better vegetable garden of all things. Naboth, incidentally, should not 
have given the king his inheritance. That is what God assigned to his family, and it was supposed to stay in his family. So when he said, the Lord forbid, that's, that's actually true. It wasn't just like a figure of speech. It would be wrong for him to sell it to the king, and it's wrong for the king to ask him for it. Ahab was angry and upset that he didn't get his way. But what followed was far worse than a tantrum. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, she hatched a plot to have Naboth killed. In Ahab's name, she had false witnesses testify that Naboth had cursed God and the king, and then he was stoned to death as punishment. And of course, now that he was dead, Ahab could take his vineyard, right? That's, that's a pretty extreme for a vegetable garden, right? Did Jezebel really want that vineyard real bad herself? It doesn't appear so. It just appears that she was not content to have anyone stand against her and the king. She was discontent that her power would be anything less than absolute. That was where her, her discontent was. Ahab was discontent that he couldn't get his way and put the field where he wanted it to, but she was discontent that anyone would would not just do whatever they wanted. So he was murdered. Naboth was murdered. And she brought other people into that plot. She had people give false testimony, and she involved them in that murder and led them into sin too. After all this took place, God pronounced judgment on both Ahab and Jezebel through Elijah the prophet. Let's read starting in verse 17 what God says through the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Several more judgments follow about Ahab's descendants. And then if we jump down to verse 23... And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. There's Elijah giving him the bad news. Now, both of these judgments did come to pass. They both happened just as the Lord said they would. Ahab and Jezebel were punished for their sin. And now the punishment was most likely cumulative for all the other evil things they had done too. They were very wicked. They had to hold, you can read all about them. They didn't do anything good in their whole time in power. They had just uh, defied the Lord over and over again. But uh, this was the one that finally said God, where God said, that's enough. This is the, you know, this, this sin, I'm done with you. And, uh, and so this judgment came upon them. All because they were discontent. Allowing ourselves to dwell in discontent is not only a sin itself, but it leads us into other sins. It's one of the Ten Commandments that we shall not covet. And discontent and coveting go right hand in hand, you know. If you see something someone else has, and you look at what you have, and what they have is better, next thing you know, you want what they have. Now you're coveting. It's as easy as that. And then if you actually act on that, then you can go into stealing or murder, in the case of Ahab and Jezebel. I don't think anybody here has ever murdered anybody, but, you know, I'm just saying. This is the progression. Discontent leads us into other sins. Once we give it a foothold in our lives, once we uh, decide that what we have isn't good enough, it destroys people. It, it robs them of any kind of peace that they could have in their life when they're always thinking about what they want to have that they don't have. It 
causes people to break up their marriages. It uh, causes people to be unhappy in their jobs and to talk behind other people's backs at work. You know, have, have anybody ever experienced that? Ever had a coworker who thinks that they deserve the promotion instead of the other person? They're discontent. But how about if we did have the means to have everything we could ever want? We'd be content then, right? Solomon did. Solomon, king of Israel, when God asked him to name one thing that he wanted, he got, he got to win the lottery, you know, basically. You can ask for one thing, and I'll do it. Solomon asked for wisdom, a very wise choice. He knew he was going to be king, and he knew he needed wisdom to do it. So he asked God for something good. He asked for wisdom. And because he asked so well, God gave him the wisdom, and he also gave him riches and honor. And Solomon became so wealthy in that time of prosperity for Israel that he could pretty much have anything he wanted. Anything. We see that he had a crazy palace. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Even though God had told the Israelites not to trust in horses for your power. That's what the other countries around them did. The more horses you had, the more powerful you were. But God told them not to do that because they had the Lord with them. Don't trust in horses, trust in me. But Solomon hoarded these horses. And the classic, the one that we all think of when we think of Solomon, I think, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If you can wrap your head around those numbers, I can't. How that even works, I don't know. (laughs) And many of them were foreign women that God had told the Israelites not to intermarry with because they would lead them into idolatry. And that is exactly what they did with Solomon. How they had time to lead him into idolatry when each of them got like one day a year or something, I don't know. But maybe he went around and, how do you want to spend your one day a year, honey? And she said, I want idol worship with you. I'm not sure. But they did. It says that they did. But then in the book of Ecclesiastes, which Solomon wrote, we see where all these... uh, excesses and all these fulfillments of his every wish led him. He starts that book out by saying, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's what he found. All these things, all these wives, all these things that he tried to do. He tried everything, every kind of pleasure he could try, every kind of riches he could accumulate. Every kind of thing that he could build, every earthly pleasure he could think of, he tried to accumulate knowledge even. He wanted to know all about every kind of plant and animal. And that's, that's cool. I like animals and plants. But he wanted to know it all. It was like he was hoarding it. And he tried it all, and in the end he said, everything is meaningless. If we ever think that if I only had this, or I only had that, or I only could do this, or I could only go there, then, then I would be content. Look at him. He had every wish that he could want, and he wasn't content. Warren Wiersbe said, Real contentment must come from within. You and I cannot change or control the world around us, but we can change and control the world within us. In chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 of Ecclesiastes, we see 
what Solomon determines about all these things, all these pursuits of earthly things. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? And then in the end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 13, he says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I mean, the whole duty of man isn't to follow our hearts and make our dreams come true. No. He did it. It didn't work out. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments, to serve God. That's our duty. Not to serve our own desires and look for what we think is going to make us content. In order to truly enjoy our lives and find any kind of satisfaction, we need God. Solomon took a long road to get to that conclusion, didn't he? For someone so wise, he was missing it. It was right in front of his face. And we can do the same thing, you know. Let's turn back to where we started in Philippians chapter 4, to Paul. Paul, who figured it out, figured it out without 700 wives or 12,000 horses. He probably had more time to figure things out when he didn't have 700 wives to worry about, didn't he? Just saying. <laughs> Before we go any further, let me say that the potential irony of me giving this message, when those of you who know me a little bit know that in the last year uh, we bought a new house and <laughs> got Megan a newer car and many of you know we're having a new baby in October. <laughs> so there's a potential for irony there. Aren't I chasing after a bunch of things, you know? But you know, it doesn't escape, that doesn't escape me as I'm getting this lesson together. But you know, I'll say that God gave me those things. And God gave me those things without me striving to get them. And, you know, just because we're trying to be content doesn't mean that we have to stay in the same exact situation, the same exact place forever. Sometimes we have to be content with change. Discontent is a thing that can apply to changes in your life just as much as it can apply to staying still. I, I don't like change, do you? You know, uh, when we were, another story about me and Megan, when we were going to get married, I had the brilliant plan, because I was so content, that we were going to, she was going to move in when we got married to my tiny, tiny two-bedroom apartment that me and the boys shared for six or seven years. And we were just going to shoehorn her and her stuff in there, and we were all going to bump into each other every time we walked around. And that's because I was content. I, was, I didn't need anything bigger. But it, it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> I was just, I was discontent with the idea of changing anything, you know. And uh, one night, Justin and Nicola actually broached the subject with me because they could see that this was going to be a train wreck. <laughs> and the good friends that they are, they, they just broke the news to me. Like, well, maybe you should think about moving. I said, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. And Megan's fine not moving. And then she's like, well... <laughs> She wasn't going to tell me right away. She was going to let, let it, she was, she was going to move in, and, and, uh, and then I would figure it out, you know, which, you know, she was on some patience with me. She was willing to do that. So first, Justin and Nicola told me about it. 
And I kicked against that real hard. I said, no, 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 we've got enough going on with this wedding and everything. We can't think about a new house. And I didn't like the idea at all. Then, then we went directly downstairs to Rich and Paula's house for premarital counseling after that. And Rich and Paula told us we should move. And then I said, I give up. I just, if all these people are telling me it's a good idea, I, I trust these people. And, you know, my wife wants it too, I found out. So, or my soon-to-be wife. And that was, it was such a blessing that I didn't just stay in that place, you know, because it would have been terrible. Any of a few of you, only a few of you have ever been to that, that apartment because you don't fit. <laughs> and my kids now are too tall to have fit in there, you know. <laughs> so it would have been a train wreck, all in the name of me thinking that I, to be content, I needed to stay still. But I needed to be content with the fact that things were changing in my life. And that sometimes, you know, even in that chaos, we can be content. It was, it was, it was bad. It was a bad idea. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. <laughs> God totally blessed that decision. We moved to a neighborhood where we rented a house and the kids had a yard to play in. And, and then we liked the neighborhood so much that when we bought our house last fall, we moved two streets over. And that's where we're planning on staying for a while, you know. So... You know, we can dig our heels in and be discontent about change, too. It's not just about staying where you are and, and being, you know, completely satisfied with what you've got. It, it, it is good to be satisfied with what you have, but God will send changes to you, too. We have to figure out which changes are from God and which changes are our own striving for something different than what we have. So, contentment with change. Be careful to pray about the changes in your life. A new house, a new job, a new car, they all might be a blessing from God or they might be a wrong turn you're taking because you're discontent. Paul said in verse 12 that he learned, to be, he learned the secret of being content in not just the situation he was in, but in any situation, in plenty or in want. Paul's life was a whole series of changes all the time. When he says that he learned to be content, he wasn't talking about learn to be, learning to be content in one place. He was learning to be content wherever God sent him, whether he was having a great time or a bad time, whether he was in jail or free, whether he was shipwrecked on an island, being bit by a snake, all kinds of things. He was content. He traveled from place to place on his missionary journeys, not because he was discontent, but because God sent him there. So if God's leading you to stay where you are and keep things the way they are, be content. If God's jumbling your life up and leading you to a change, be content to follow where he leads. That's an act of trusting God when we follow him where he's telling us to go without really knowing how it's going to work out. So we've touched on a few things that we can struggle to be content with. There are plenty more. We can be even discontent with ministry what we're doing here at the church. D.L. Moody once said, There are many of us who are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us who are willing to do little things. Maybe that's you, and you want God to do something really amazing with you, but so far it hasn't happened. If you're doing something small, don't despise the day of small things. Those small things are important. If there are more small things you can do to, say, to serve the Lord, do them. See if He's leading you there. And those little things add up to something big. Maybe you don't feel like you're getting the right opportunities to serve the Lord. Well, there are ways to get involved here. 
and elsewhere out in the community, witnessing to people, doing things here around the church. Pray to God and see where he would lead you. Maybe you have a gift you don't even know about that God wants to use you for, with for his glory. Don't strive in serving him, though. It's not like a ladder that you want to climb up. Way up is down. Like Paul, we should be letting God lead and be content to follow where he leads. Are we any closer to the secret yet? After all this, after all this, these examples and everything, the secret is in the next verse. <laughs> verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength, or this New King James translation that more people have heard quoted, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a very popular and frequently used scripture. I think more often than not, it is quoted without the context of contentment, though, isn't it? You see it on football players' eye black, right? They read it, Philippians 4.13, under their eye. That's like, I can tackle this guy. Through Christ who gives me strength. And that, you know, maybe, that God, maybe God is helping him to tackle that guy. You know? You see it a lot in sports, actually. All different sports. Climb a mountain, run a marathon. God's going to give me strength to do it. Maybe God is giving you the strength to do it. I don't think it applies only to contentment. But the context here is about contentment. That's the first thing that it's about, is being content. All those other things might be true. God might give you the strength to be a really good football player. That's entirely possible. But God will give us the strength to be content. That's something that applies to all of us, not just the football players. The big secret, Paul's secret to being content, is Jesus. It's just like when you ask your kids what they learned in Sunday school today. They said, about Jesus. It's the big secret, Jesus. That's the secret to being content. Is having him in our lives. Through him and only through him can we find a way to be content no matter what's going on. It's easy to be content when everything's great. But if we're going to be content through the storms of our lives, we need Jesus. When he was here during his ministry, he was content. Come on now. some clicker problems it's on it's got batteries why don't you guys click that for me sorry <laughs> there we go when Jesus was here on earth he was content to live the life of a regular human a poor human at that there's nowhere to put him when he was born he was put in an animal trough you get a nice idea of that, you know, you think about it like, like, oh, that's, that's cool. Jesus was born in a stable. Jesus was put in an animal trough as a baby. Would any of you put your baby in an animal trough? I'm not going to put my daughter in an animal trough when she's born. So <laughs> now that I said that, maybe I'll have to. <laughs> I hope not. He traveled around teaching and healing people without a home. He said he had no place to lay his head. Without any possessions, he went into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. I would die. He was content to set aside his glory and his place in heaven to be a human. He was raised by parents who didn't have much, but they did follow God's commands faithfully. 
He was content to let God the Father lead him wherever he went. And when he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, even in anguish over what was about to happen to him at the cross, he was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. He was content with the Father's plans for him. And knowing what the Father's will was after he prayed there, he was content to be nailed to that cross for my sins and yours, to make a way for us to be cleansed and to spend eternity with him. One thing Jesus was not content with was to stay in heaven and leave us in our sins. Can we be content to do our own thing and live our lives apart from a relationship that he wants us to have with him? That's what God doesn't want us to be content with. We should be content with our situation in life, our job, our marriage, our family, our finances, our dinner. (laughs) But we don't need to be content. God doesn't want us to be content without him. He wants us to hunger and thirst for more of him. And as we seek him, we will find him, and he will fill us up to overflowing with living water, Jesus said. He said in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or in other translations, life abundantly is what he wants to give us. That's the secret of contentment. By getting your satisfaction in life by following Jesus, not from things, not from places, not from people, not from accomplishments or the nice things people say about you, but by following Jesus, serving him, and spending time alone with him. Paul learned the secret. As long as he had Jesus, a prison cell and a palace were the same to him. So follow Jesus and trust in God's plan for you. His plans are to bless you more than you know. And even out of something difficult or something painful, he will give you contentment. I'd be negligent if I didn't say that it can be very difficult to be content when nothing seems to be going right in our lives when we're alone, when we're sick, when we're hurting, when we've lost someone dear to us, when we don't know what to do or where to go, we don't know how to solve the problem in front of us. I can't say I understand every painful situation that all of you might be dealing with right now, but God does. Jesus does. He went through the agony of the cross so that you wouldn't have to suffer through these things separated from him. He is there with you in your trials and your sufferings. In the worst days of my life, he's been there with me, reminding me that whatever is going on here is nothing compared to the eternal joy that he has prepared for me in heaven. I found peace in those days from one thing only, that one day I'd be with him. And if that's you right now, if you're going through the worst time of your life, that's where you can find peace too. And someday this is going to be over and you're going to be in heaven with Jesus. So maybe you're happy as you can be right now with the way your life's going. And if so, that's great. I'm happy for you too. Not to be a downer, but Jesus has promised that there will be trials in this life though. And when you go through one, remember that he is secret, the secret he has for us to being content in that trial is him. Maybe you've only got little things that are causing you discontent. And you've just got to ask God to help you to draw more contentment from him. If you're having a bad day, things aren't going the way you want them to at work, just ask God for some help with that. 
go to him in prayer. Spend a little more time with him each day. Maybe you're going through that terrible situation right now, going through a fire or a trial, and you need to just remember that Jesus is with you in that. Or maybe you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, you don't have any source of contentment at all. You can't find it in the things of this world because you're always going to be missing Jesus until you come to him. He went to the cross so that you could have fellowship with him, so that you could be restored and redeemed. He wanted to rescue you from sin and death, but until you come to him, you're not rescued, you're lost. He wants to be your savior. He wants to wash away your sins and rescue you. He wants to give you eternal life. That's how much he loves you. He died on a cross for you. If you've never asked Jesus to be your savior, savior, he has made it very simple. You just need to admit that you are a sinner in need of saving. Believe that he is God, the son, and that he died on the cross to pay for your sins and then rose again. Ask him to be your savior, not just a savior, not just the savior of the world, but your savior, and he will be. And then you can have contentment in life that you can never have without him. No matter what happens, because someday you're going to spend eternity in heaven with him. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that I am not always content with what you've given me. I know that I have grumbled and complained just like the Israelites about things that you've given me, places you've put me, and things that you've had going on in my life. And I, I just ask you to forgive me, Lord, and to help me to be content no matter what's going on. You, Lord Jesus, are what I need more than anything this world has to offer. I pray that no matter what the situation anyone here is in, that you would help them to be content in it as well by your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would follow Paul's example and seek you first and foremost in our lives and that we would be content to rest in you even in the darkest moments and the most difficult situations. I pray to you, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you as their Savior, who may be here today or listening later, that you would show them how desperately they need you, that their life just will never be complete without you, that they're separated from you and they need to do something about it. If that's you and you see the truth, that you'll never find true contentment apart from Jesus, pray with me. Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of your standard, and I ask you to save me. I trust in your completed work on the cross, that you paid for my sins and then rose again to prove who you are, the Son of God. I give my life to you, Jesus, and I want to follow you from now on. Amen. Thank you all for listening. I hope this was encouraging. And if it wasn't encouraging, I hope that you will be content that Pastor Rich will be back next week. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>